You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Ben McIntyre, who's a writer-at-large for the Times of London and the best-selling author of A Spy Among Friends, Double Cross, Operation Mincemeat, Agent Zigzag, Rogue Heroes, and other books. His newest book is The Spy and the Traitor, the greatest espionage story of the Cold War. Welcome, Ben, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you've written a lot of books centered on the middle of the 20th century, World War II time period, and even some on subjects prior to that. This is a bit of a departure. This is far more recent history. So what inspired you to tell the story of a, a Soviet spy that a lot of us may have heard of, uh, but maybe don't know a whole lot about, Oleg Gordievsky? I suppose one of the reasons was that uh, it was a rather prosaic reason, really, but, but that, you know, the, the sources for my Second World War histories, uh, sadly, are, are, are disappearing. You know, the, that generation is really, when I began the process sort of 20 years ago, there were still quite a lot of Second World War veterans around. Today, there are sadly very few. And, and for me, having the sort of living witnesses to these events is kind of gold dust, really. That's the thing that you really want to hear. You want to hear what it smells like, what it felt like what someone looked like, and, and getting that from the witness themselves is ideal. And the other reason is that I've always known about the story of Oleg Gordievsky, but it seemed to me that it had never really been properly explored. And he himself um, had never really discussed it in its full importance. And, and you know, he's an elderly man now. He's, he's 80 this year. And it just seemed to me, I began this project about five years ago, that somebody, and I hope that was going to be me, needed to capture his memories before they were no longer available. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's an interesting question here. When I when I heard that you were writing a book on Gordievsky, I said, all right, well, I've read his autobiography. I've read most, most of the books he co-authored with Chris Andrew. What mm. does your book bring to the narrative that we haven't seen before? Well, uh, the simple answer is is the detail of what really happened. I mean, when Oleg wrote his own book back in 1996, it was done under considerable um, restraint, is probably the right word. Uh, MI6 did not want the full story to come out, and so he was unable really to describe in full what had actually happened. The other element of this is that I've been able, through Oleg and through others, to contact every single one of the case officers 
who were involved in the case, in the running of this case. And so there are details of tradecraft, details of what was done that, that Gordievsky himself is unaware of. So it's a much fuller, it's a, it's a properly detailed story. And uh, as many of your listeners will know, MI6 does not usually discuss this kind of subject. Right. I mean, the MI6 archives are sealed. They will never be opened. Um, unlike the CIA, there is no freedom of information access to any of that, and MI6 is under no legal obligation whatever to discuss anything, uh, and, and usually does not. They have made an exception in this case. It's not been authorized from above. It's not, it's not that MI6 in some way is kind of allowing an official version to be told, but they have not stopped their former officers from speaking about this, which gives it a kind of pattern that I, I believe, I hope this isn't blowing my own trumpet, but, but it gives it a kind of level of detail that's never been achieved in an MI6 case before because everyone has spoken freely about it. No, and I, and I served that question up so that you could answer it, but I can chime in myself and say that this is extraordinarily detailed, uh, far more than we'll get other places. So listeners, if you if you think you know the story... This will be the first time that you'll read a lot of things, um, unless you were one who actually operated on the actual Gordievsky <laughs> case. Uh, this will be a chance for you to, to hear and see things that you ne- never had before. Let me ask you a little bit about your, your philosophy on research and writing, because you've written a lot of books that have focused on the intelligence world or special operations. And in these cases, we have to you know deal with things like government documents that are heavily redacted or classified. Or we're dependent on memoirs or people's memories of these events, even when we're talking to the actual people. You mentioned several times in the book that Gordievsky himself is clearly, let's call it misremembering some of his past and his motivations. How do we get our hands around the fact that our star witness in this case, the man the book's about, is not necessarily portraying the past as accurately as we'd like him to? That's a very human trait, isn't it? I mean, the truth is we are all, to some extent, unreliable narrators of our own past. Um, if you are telling the story of your life, you tend to accrete certain stories, certain characteristics, certain elements of the story, and through the mere telling and retelling of them, they will achieve a level of veracity in your own telling of them that, that, that may not actually chime with what happened. Again, I mean, just to go back, what, I, what I've been able to do here, I hope, is to take Oleg's own account of his past, which is very detailed. I mean, he has a prodigious memory. I mean, it's one of the things that made him such an extraordinarily effective agent, uh, was that he, is, he really has a, an amazing power of recall. But to be able to set that against the professional people who were running him, the, the, the others who knew him, his friends, his family. And I think in the end, you, you make a choice, and it's a choice about what you believe is the most likely set of these events. So in a way, what you have is a kind of multiple-layered memoir. And memoir, of course, is itself not a necessarily a strictly factual account. It is what someone remembers. But if you can set someone's memories against other memories and you, you, know, and you can get enough of them together, you get a pretty clear idea of what happened. Yeah, you mentioned memoirs are, are what your memory is. Uh, I would also throw in, and I want to ask you the question about Memoirs are what people choose to tell you. Sure. Um, so how do we get around the problem of self-interest when it comes to telling these stories? It's embedded. It's mm. embedded. And I think many of your listeners will also 
understand that, that spies and agents and, and so on are, are tremendous storytellers. Yes. I mean, that is also an, an element of this. I mean, that's the nicest way to put it. I mean, some are fantasies. Some are fabulous. Um, and, and the work of intelligence itself is very often the job of trying to sift through multiply contradictory accounts to try to find the one that most nearly approximates to the truth. And, and that's, in a way, what what I've tried to do here. It's not a perfect science. Um, but then history is not a perfect science either. It is, it is you, you make choices in any, in any kind of historical undertaking. So I think, in a way, you know, the difficulties and challenges of writing about the intelligence world are not that different from, from any kind of history, really. You have to take a vast, often in the, a, a sort of, almost sort of encounterably large area of, of information and try to work out where the narrative lies, where the truth lies. Let me ask you one final philosophical question, and I think this is one that I've always kind of struggled with when when I write stuff, is you've made history very popular. And, and, and to some people, that's that's a derogatory statement, but in my case, I'm making it a compliment because you haven't dumbed down the history in doing so. You certainly still have a hardcore reference section where people can find out what inf- where the information's coming from. How do you lean... How do you figure out what is the right balance of making something that someone might pick up at an airport and want to read and be entertained and learn something from history, but at the same time, you could you could assign this to a class if you wanted to because it's been so well referenced. How do you maintain that balance? Well, it's that that is the art, I, I guess. I mean, and it's often very tricky, and I'm not sure I've always got it right. I, I feel that you do not want to. Cl- I mean, I am telling a story. I am telling a story that is as close to reality as I can possibly get. But I am also trying to take readers with me who do not want to be clouded over the head with huge amounts of scholarly backtracking and on the one hand, on the other. I'm telling, I'm telling a story, you know, sequentially, as it were. And therefore, you know, you have to make choices. I, I drop things if they don't fit my story. That's not that I don't believe them, but if they're not part of a... Of a, of a tale that will bring readers with me. But it's a tricky balance because, and I do think it's very important, particularly when I'm attempting to tell a story that is true, that it is properly referenced. I, I, I've always tried with the books to make sure that any time, every time that I identify the voice of somebody, I say where it has come from. That's, that's trickier in this particular book because, of course, many of the sources are by definition anonymous and therefore I cannot give their real names and say where they come from. So to some extent with this book, as distinct from many of the others that I've written, readers will have to take it on trust that I am I am telling the precise words that have been told to me by someone else. But but I nonetheless it is I think it is absolutely vital that readers are able to turn to the back and say, Okay, this is solidly researched. This is not this is not a piece of fiction. Right. And and I think I learned very early on that one of the one of the things that makes readers realize that you are telling them the truth is when you tell them you don't know the answer. Right, exactly. It's not, yeah. it's not a fashionable thing to do, <laughs> but, you know, I, when, I, when I hit a brick wall, when I find there isn't evidence, when I find that the, the memoir is missing a vital piece, I think it is better to say that and to say to the readers, we simply don't know. We do not know what happened at this juncture. Because that, that is, that's an act of honesty that I hope sort of in a way binds the reader closer to you. Let's dive a little bit into the story itself, and, and without giving away the ending, I mean, you kind of 
said Gordievsky's alive and he's he's an elderly man in present tense. So we know we know that they didn't quite get to him at the end, but I, I think we can kind of dive into some of the important concepts. And one of the important concepts that always gets bandied about whenever we talk about anyone who, you know, without adding any kind of connotation to this, commits treason against his own country is what is the motivation? And I think that we kind of have to start at the very beginning with Gordievsky's yeah. life when we talk about his motivation. We do, and it's, of course, that is the central core, that is the central mystery that, that actually drew me to this story and still, I, I, you know, fascinates me. It's, it's true of almost all the books I've written, is to try to get to the core of why somebody, and, and there are different motivations for different people, why somebody would be drawn into this world and why they would do it. Gordievsky's story is a fascinating one in this respect because he was a pure-bred child of the KGB. His father was a KGB officer. His revered older brother was a KGB officer. He was brought up in a KGB flat, in a KGB compound. He lived, ate, and breathed Russian intelligence. And, and I think it's true to say, and he would say this himself, he never considered being anything in his life other than a KGB officer. So he, you know, he, in many ways, he was, a, he, he was destined to be what he himself referred to as homo sovieticus, you know, Soviet man, an obedient, loyal, servant of the Soviet state. So what happened? The answer is multiple, and, and I think a lot of it lies in, in, in Gordievsky's own very particular character. He's quite a rebellious person by nature. He's a questioner, he's a thinker, he's highly intellectual, he's a brilliant linguist. And even before he had left university, partly because he was a linguist, he was studying German, he, he had access to Western newspapers that most students didn't have. And, and that began, I think, to, to set in his mind the idea that there was a different world from the one that he was being taught about uh, in Soviet Russia. He began to question the kind of obvious propaganda that was pumped out uh, to, to Russians, to Soviet school children and, and to university students. So there is a kind of rebellious flicker in his character. A key moment in his, in his emergence, I guess, if you could put it that way, was... He was a witness to the building of the Berlin Wall. I mean, as a very young student, he went on a sort of secondment to East Berlin, and he saw the, the wall itself being put up, the bulldozers coming in, the, the barbed wire, clearly demonstrating that those in East Germany were really prisoners of the state. And, and I think that was a huge shock to him, the idea that actually, in order to keep this system going, you needed a system of bricks and barbed wire and armed guards. And, and that had a profound effect on him. Um, and he began to sort of question the system, and, and he began to discuss a sort of very gentle, unexpressed, often un, unconscious dissidence with other students. And that's a, that, was a, that was a key moment, I think, in, in, in his emergence. And, and it sort of began to emerge from there. Only also has, interestingly, a kind of a sense of his own intellectual status. He is, he is an extremely clever man. He adores classical music. He reads very widely. And I think he was also repelled, and increasingly repelled, by the sort of what he saw as the Philistinism of the Soviet state. When he realized there were certain sorts of music he was not allowed to listen to and certain books that he was not allowed to read, that also triggered an increasingly violent rebellion in him. But he still decided to become a full-fledged KGB officer. This wasn't like he he decided not to go down the path that his family had led. And I, I love kind of imagining in my head the way you lay this out in the book of his training and the people that he ran into 
while he was, uh, you know, working or training to be a KGB officer. Everything, you know, all the the people who had defected, the Kim Philbys of the world, or the the former case officers like Rudolph Abel or William Fisher. Uh, that Ooh. had to have been an extraordinary. Uh, in pre- uh, during his impressionistic years, he had the Berlin Wall going up. He had got, lived through the Hungarian uprising, but at the same time, he's surrounded by these heavyweights like Philby and, and Fisher and others. Yes, no, I mean, it's, I mean, I think it is possible, isn't it, to to be, I mean, at this early stage of his life, he was still a devoted KGB officer with dissident instincts inside him. I don't think he saw a contradiction yet in that position, and and of course. You know, he was he was partly brainwashed by the state at this at this stage. You know, the, the school 101 that he attended, that wonderfully named school 101, a completely unconscious echo of George Orwell's Room 101, was the, the so-called Red Banner Training Institute, which was the KGB spy school, and he absolutely loved it there. I mean, he, that's where he learned the, the essence of spycraft: surveillance, combat, coding. Um, you know, dead drops, dead letterbox, all the arcana, the, the complex um, elements. And he absolutely adored that. I think it was one of the happiest times of his life, even though he was beginning to question the state. And one has to bear in mind, there were, although we see the Stalinist years and, and, and the immediate aftermath as being a kind of monolithic world, there were flickers of resistance already in this world that he was beginning to pick up. So I don't think he saw a contradiction at this stage in being a KGB officer, but one he was prepared to question. He's really the personification of the Soviet fear of sending people overseas because his first posting in Copenhagen couldn't have gone worse for the Soviets, right? I mean, he he's introduced to the West. He sees how positive it is in comparison to the drab Soviets. It's exactly what the Soviets were afraid of. Yeah, I mean, you put your finger on it. I mean, the truth is they, they didn't like sending anyone abroad in any capacity because, of course, some of the, the sort of mendacity that maintained the Soviet state would be completely obvious. I mean, the, the Soviet state painted foreign countries as being nests of sort of sybaritic corruption. Well, I mean, Gordievsky and, and his first wife arrived in Copenhagen and found a completely different world, a world of, of freedom and, and, and liberty and understanding and cultural um, you know, availability and all sorts of things that, that really, I mean, he was completely stunned by what he found in Copenhagen. And I think to a huge extent seduced, which, as you say, was exactly uh, what the KGB didn't want to happen. Um, that's why they were extremely nervous of anybody who showed too much interest in, let alone admiration for the West. And, and but, but, you know, allowing people to go to the West was a quick way of allowing them to see what was going on. How much did the Prague Spring represent a major turning point in his life? Because the way it's written, it seems like this was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, I mean, the Prague Spring was the pivot. I mean, that was the moment, I think, when... And don't forget, you know, the, 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 among young Russians, you know, the, the advent of what appeared to be a reform movement in Czechoslovakia that was sort of rolling back this hoary, um, exhausted form of communism was incredibly exciting. I mean, it was, a, it, you know, a lot of young... People saw that happening and believed it was the way of the future. And Oleg Gordievsky was one of them. I mean, he was having bets inside the, the Soviet embassy in Copenhagen with his colleagues, saying, oh, "You know, I bet you this is going to work. You know, the Russian, you know, the state cannot possibly stop this. They're not going to send the tanks in." And then when Brezhnev sent the tanks in, Oleg was absolutely appalled. I mean, I mean, even today his voice shakes with a kind of intense moral anger at the thought of what happened to the Prague Spring and when, you know, 200,000 troops stormed into Czechoslovakia to destroy the revolution. And, and that was the first moment 
but Gordievsky decided that he had to do something. And what he did was rather dramatic in many ways. He, he went to a telephone inside the Soviet embassy that he knew was bugged by the, by the Danish intelligence service. He knew that the, 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 the Danes were listening in on that phone. And he called his wife at home and delivered a kind of harangue, a furious um, sort of litany of complaint and, and fury about what, what the Soviets had done in Czechoslovakia, saying they wouldn't get away with it. And he, he says that really that was his first signal to the West, that he, was, look, he wasn't available for recruitment, but he was definitely sending a signal that said, I am not like the other KGB officers. You know? And he also knew that his own telephone at home was bugged, so either way he believed it was going to be picked up. I mean, the irony of this story <laughs> is that it wasn't, it wasn't picked up. The Danes managed, uh, you know, there was such a torrent of information coming in, particularly at that time, that this little clue, this little, what would one call it? I mean, you would call it a little flash of ankle, if you like, this moment when, when Gordievsky was sort of you know, sending a subtle signal was completely missed. And the, the PET, Danish intelligence, uh, it's not like they didn't try to recruit him, but they also, I mean, this is straight out of, you never see this in a movie, because no one believed that a, an agency would be this inept. This is certainly not the Hollywoodized version of spying intelligence agencies. They bungled their outreach to him in, in such a spectacular way as well. Well, they absolutely did. And you're right, there are some comical aspects of it. Uh, one of the things that Oleg found so entrancing about, about Copenhagen was the freedom, and that included sexual liberty. And, and at one point, he went to um, the sort of the, the red light district uh, of, of Copenhagen and bought two gay pornographic magazines, which he took home to show his wife. And this was not an indication that Oleg is, was not, is not gay. Um, but he was just interested, and he wanted to show his wife, you know, gosh, it's interesting, look, look, look what you can buy on the streets of Copenhagen. Well, the truth is he was spotted going into that, um, going into that shop. Now, whether that was because he was already under Danish surveillance, or whether the Danish surveillance, the PET, was actually monitoring the shop itself, is not clear. But from that moment, the Danes picked up the, this Russian intelligence officer, and they'd already clocked him as being a, a KGB officer. This Russian intelligence officer was buying gay porn. They immediately thought, well, look, that's, that's a potentially vulnerable person. So they launched that oldest and nastiest trick in the spy book. They attempted to set a honey trap. They dispatched a, a young Danish man, very drunk, at a, or apparently very drunk, at a party to try and chat Oleg up. Uh, and invite him uh, out for a drink later in the hope that he would, you know, fall for it and they could compromise him. The irony is that Oleg didn't realise he was being chatted up uh, by a honey trap and went home to bed. Um, so it didn't work. So you've got you've got Oleg throwing out a, a, a line to Western intelligence, which didn't land, and you've got Western intelligence attempting to ensnare Oleg in a way that was completely cack-handed and hopeless and didn't work either. <laughs> well, so let me ask you, how, how did the defection of Stanislaw Kaplan make a difference? I mean, it seems like this is really what set the stage for his ability to reach out to the Danes in the end. Yes, this is absolutely right. Stanislaw Kaplan was a fellow, had been a fellow student um, with Oleg at university. He was a, he was a Czech. He, he, he was planning, he joined the Czech intelligence service. But after the Prague Spring, he defected. He, he managed to get to the West via Canada. And one of the things he did when being debriefed by MI6, which had a very close relationship with the Canadian Intelligence Service, was he, he produced a list of all those people that he thought might harbour dissident interests. I mean, there wasn't a huge list, but Oleg was on it. They had chatted various occasions in their student days, 
Stanislaw has picked up the fact that Oleg was not an absolutely fully paid up KGB sort of um, stooge, as it were. Now, this, when it was related to MI6, coincided with the report from the Danes indicating that there was a, a potentially compromisable figure in, in Denmark. And that meant that he was flagged in MI6, um, in MI6 thinking. And MI6, which is, of course, the external intelligence service of the British uh, Secret Service, decided to throw out a bigger flag to Oleg. And they dispatched Stanislaw Kaplan to go and see Oleg in, in Denmark. And Stanislaw Kaplan was under orders from MI6 to sound out Oleg, to see what kind of reaction he would have. I mean, the mere fact that a defector turned up in Oleg's apartment in Copenhagen was already itself a sign that, that you know, that they were, they were trying to get to him. And Oleg knew exactly what was happening. And initially, he was thoroughly dismayed by Stanislaw Kaplan's arrival. But his, his, his responses to, to Kaplan's questions about what Oleg thought about the Prague Spring, how happy he was what he felt about, you know, Stanislav's own defection. His answers to those questions indicated that he might conceivably be recruitable, and it set the stage for the next part of the courtship. Which we now, we, we can skip that we know clearly works. <laughs> he, is, <laughs> he is recruited by the British. But I, I, there's a lot of wonderful paradoxes here, wonderful from a kind of historical perspective. I'm sure Oleg didn't think they were wonderful at the time. Wonderful paradoxes here that Oleg found himself in a very strange situation because the only way that he could get himself access to the high-level information he wanted to pass along to the British was to do a really good job as a KGB officer. Yeah. But he couldn't do too well because then he'd be working against the Danes and everyone else. So kind of this happy medium. And then, of course, the British on their side have a paradox of their own where He's handing over wonderfully juicy in information, but there's no way to act upon it unless they want to blow their source. Yeah. I mean, you put your finger on two of the essential conundra in, in spying in general. You're absolutely right. If Oleg was too good at his job as the KGB uh, officer in, in Copenhagen, he was going to damage Western interest, and the West certainly didn't want that. If he wasn't good enough, he wouldn't get promoted, and therefore he wouldn't get access to better information, and therefore he wouldn't be able to pass back better stuff. And in fact, this was this was the, the sort of dilemma that actually faced Kim Philby as well in, in his years when he was working for the KGB inside MI6. I mean, his job was to set up operations that would that would do damage to the to the very organisation that he was secretly supporting. And so his method, which actually is more or less what, what Oleg did too, was to set up operations with his left hand and then to unpick them with his right. So Oleg would be carrying out illegals operations, you know, recruiting underground people to, to spy for, 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 for the Soviet Union, and then he would immediately inform MI6 of who those people were. So it was, it was a very, I mean, it, it is a central problem in a way. And the second one, is in a way even more acute. Acute. I mean, it's you know, if you have a source that is producing fantastic amounts of good information, if it's if it's very good, you can't act on it, because if you do, there is a danger that you will burn your own source. So, Oleg was, for example, identifying active agents in the West who had been recruited by the Soviet Union. You know, people in, in quite important positions of authority in in the government who had gone over to the other side. Now. If those people were then suddenly picked up by Western security services, the KGB would immediately 
immediately realised that it had a mole in its midst and would launch a mole hunt. And the high probability was that they would get Oleg. So there, there was a problem here, which was that MI6 was producing an awful, was getting and gathering an awful lot of information that it could not use. And of course, you know, this has an irony when we get to the part where, where, where Oleg does indeed come into trouble because, you know, it, it, the problem you've got is that if you've got an immense amount of product that you can't use, eventually the pressure builds and you have to start using it. Right. I, let, me, let me skip ahead to an interesting question in that because one of the most... I don't know a lot of British political history from the 70s and the early 80s, so the idea of Agent Boot was crazy to me. I mean, maybe it shouldn't be. I'm not going to make any comments about the American political situation right now, but the idea of a major party, a potential prime minister being completely... And utterly compromised by a foreign intelligence agency. Uh, well, was... it, it is staggering. I mean, yeah. it is. It's a, it, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, please go. No, I mean, it is. I mean, the Agent Boot story is extraordinary. Agent Boot was a KGB agent who was actually Michael Foote. I mean, there's a deliberate pun in the in in the title of his case, but Michael Foote was a, a, a very prominent Labour politician who by the time Oleg revealed his existence as a KGB agent to, to MI6, was head of the Labour Party. He was about to go into a general election in which he was seeking to unseat Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister of Britain. There was a possibility, and it was no more than a possibility, but it was nonetheless there, that the future Prime Minister of Britain could have been a KGB source. And it does seem staggering to us now, but one needs to get it into sort of historical perspective. Michael Foote had been a radical, rather fiery left-wing MP in the 1960s. During the 1960s, he had regular meetings with KGB officers in London. It's almost certain that he knew they were KGB officers. Uh, if he didn't, he was being staggeringly naive. He was quite well paid by these people, too. I mean, he was given a lot of money. Um, over the years. Now, a lot of it was used, we believe, to prop up a kind of left-wing newspaper that, that Michael Foote was deeply involved in, but it's not clear at all what happened to the money. Uh, and it was a considerable amount, too. I mean, it amounted to roughly the equivalent of about £35,000 these days, which would be, I don't know, that would be, what, about $60,000, a not inconsiderable sum for an impecunious MP. Now, whether you could define Michael Foote as a spy seems to me more more dubious, really. I mean, he didn't have access to high-level secrets that would have been of use to, you know, to, 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 to Soviet intelligence. On the other hand, he was quite willing to tell these people over lunch, you know, in, inside a gossip about the Labour Party, what was happening in the trade union movement, stuff that the Soviet Union was very keen to find out about. I mean... It wasn't just that the Soviet Union was hunting for military secrets. It wanted to know what was really going on behind the scenes. And Michael Foote seems to have been only too willing to furnish this. I mean, there's a very good Russian term, which is a useful idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, what it means is somebody who has kind of naively gone along without realizing what they're doing. Well, I mean, Michael Foote was extremely useful to the KGB, but he was also profoundly idiotic. <laughs> Well, and he certainly would have been more useful as prime minister. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, but you can imagine what, what, this, what, what this kicked off in, in MI6. I mean, when, the, when it became clear to MI6 that there was a possibility that the future prime minister was going, had been a red spy, 
what do they do with this information? I mean, obviously, with an election looming, if it got into the hands of the other party, if it got into the Conservative hands, it would just destroy Michael Foot. I mean, that would be the end of the election. Michael Foot would never be electable. So what did they do with the information? Well, they made a very canny decision, which was to do nothing. I mean, they just sat on this information. It did not get out. But there was a provision. I mean, had Michael Foote been elected, it was, it was agreed within MI6 that the Queen would have to be informed because there was a potential constitutional crisis looming if that had got out. So British intelligence had learned before an election that the prime candidate for being in power in Great Britain was potentially a Russian spy and sat on it. They sat on it. I mean, I think to say he was the prime candidate would be would be generous to Michael Foote. I mean, many people thought he was absolutely always destined to lose that election, which of course he then did, uh, meaning the problem more or less went away. Um, right. I mean, Th- yes, Thatcher was reelected right after the Falklands, right? Yeah. That's right. No, I mean, by that, by the, after the Falklands, it was pretty clear Thatcher was, was never going to be unseated, and and Michael Foote lost by a considerable margin and sort of eventually sort of vanished off into history. But no, I mean, it was a, you know, it was a really serious moment. That. I mean, what what do you do with that piece of information? I mean, I think we know in, in modern days it would probably, you know, it wouldn't have been the lid would it would have been impossible to keep the lid on it. But that's what they managed to do. So, Gordievsky ran into this information when he was preparing himself to be part of the London station for the KGB. So let's shift a little bit to his time there because this is actually where things become really tricky because working inside Great Britain, it wasn't just MI6 that had to kind of figure out ways to work with him, but he had to deal with MI5 in a very particular way. And MI6 had to deal with MI5 in a very particular way because they couldn't just say, don't watch this guy. Because then all of a sudden everyone knows that he's their, he's their spy. That's right. I mean, there was a very small cell within MI5, the security service, that was aware of the Gordievsky case, but no one else could know about it because that would have been a, a huge security risk. So it was, it was a fascinating collaboration between the two branches of British intelligence. Not always, um, there's not always a great deal of love lost between those two branches, but this is one of those moments when actually working together achieved an astonishing result. But yes, I mean, you know, the truth is, Gordievsky had to be followed by MI5 because if they didn't follow him, the KGB would spot it. But he couldn't be followed in a way that was different from the way that any other was followed because then that would alert others within MI5 that he was not he was not just a straightforward, if there is such a thing, straightforward KGB officer. Absolutely. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. What's extraordinary 
is he gave them everything, right? I mean, he basically a total download of KGB information. But what they were expecting was a whole bunch of Kim Philbys running around. And, like, you know, the, the scary Soviet KGB completely infiltrating one end of Britain to the other. And they were somewhat disappointed to find out that there really wasn't a lot of there there. Right. I mean, the spy hunters were all ready to go into sort of full mode as soon as, as Gordievsky arrived. The information Gordievsky provided was actually, apart from these few politicians and a few others the KGB had got, it wasn't this 10-foot-tall giant. It wasn't, it hadn't riddled the British establishment with spies as it had in the 1930s. In fact, the KGB was pretty weak in Britain. Um, and that, while it was initially a little disappointing to the spy hunters, I think it also produced a great gust of relief that there wasn't, there wasn't some huge crisis brewing. And it, it also, in a very subtle way, I think, imbued British intelligence after years of being in a rather sort of in a defensive crouch as a result of the Philby and, and McLean and Burgess story. It actually imbued the, the, the organisations with, with a sense of its own possibilities. I mean, this was a KGB that could be beaten. Right. Well, what I love what you did is a lot of people don't do this as well is kind of walking through some of the more esoteric intelligence operations or esoteric intelligence functions and the, the, the concept of chicken feed and trying to walk that fine line between keeping him giving us all this information or the West all this information, but he still actually needed to do his job. He needed to actually be a KGB intelligence officer or he'd be sent back to Moscow, or he'd be, he wouldn't right. be able to move a high. They couldn't well, they, have... They did two things. Yeah, They did ahead. two things to keep... Um, they did two things, really, to keep Gordievsky's career on the rise. Uh, one was that they... Because, of course, he had to be, as you say, producing information that would please Moscow. And so they were feeding him with tidbits of information, things that he might be able to pick up in the normal run of things, but nothing that would be too damaging to British interests but things that would bulk up his reports and make them, look, make them look believable, make it look as if he was a highly efficient Soviet agent. And one of the things they did, which astonished me, which I'd never heard of before, was that they would actually select individuals and encourage them to speak to Oleg Gordievsky, saying, you know, he is a KGB officer, but we'd like you to talk to him. People who, in reality, could actually give him little bits of information, and he, and he could then cite these people as sources. So, so you have this extraordinary situation where MI6 is actually providing sources for a KGB spy, controlling them, obviously, controlling what they could say and how they could say it, but nonetheless actually trying to give the KGB bits of valid information. The other rather more obvious but even more effective way that they managed to get Oleg up the, up the pole was that they took to expelling his immediate bosses. First of all, they declared persona non grata the head of the political section, uh, a man called Titov, who was just removed on the grounds that, that he was engaged in espionage, which he was. Uh, so he was thrown out of the country and only immediately moved up into his position. And then more than that, they then actually expelled uh, the man called Arkady Gook, who was the head of the KGB in London. He was the resident. He was the top spook in, in, in Britain for the KGB. And they threw him out. They threw him out, which meant that then Oleg himself was appointed head of the KGB in Britain. And this was, this was gold dust. This was the moment when Oleg was going to have access to the KGB safe. How much worry was there that this would be kind of obvious? <laughs> well, uh, with hindsight, it yes. was much debated. I think at the time, I think 
the British felt they were on a roll. I think they felt that really they, it was going to work, that, that Oleg's standing was so high that he was doing so well. I mean, there was considerable debate at the time about whether to, to get rid of goo. That was considered by some to be a step too far. On the other hand, there was a very good reason for getting rid of him because he'd been pictured in, in British newspapers and identified as the head of the KGB in London. So there was an obvious standing excuse for getting rid of them. And so they grabbed it with both hands and it worked. You know, it actually did propel Oleg to the top of the chain. Let, let, before we get into kind of the beginning of the end and the, the, him being exposed, let's talk about a couple major successes. And this is something that I certainly like having conversations about. My background is nuclear intelligence. And in 1983, in that time period when when Thatcher and uh, and then eventually in 85 and Gorbachev come to power is certainly in my wheelhouse. So let's talk about Operation Rion. Um, this is something that people may... And I've certainly there's debate about how a big a deal Operation Rion was and how much people were actually taking it seriously other than whack job Yuri and drop off. Um, but he certainly provided the West with, hey, this is not a joke. People are certainly at high levels are taking this seriously. Oh, yes. I mean, the first British intelligence had ever heard of Operation Rion was when Oleg Gordievsky arrived in London and said, there is a, an enormous KGB operation underway to try to find evidence that the West is planning a nuclear first strike. Um, we are all being instructed, Oleg said, to go out and, and find proof of what Andropov firmly and genuinely believes, which is that, that there is the, that the, the Americans are going to push the button, and they're going to push the button first. Now, we may look at this now and say, well, of course America wasn't going to launch a first strike. But actually what only really proved, and, and, and successive reports on Rian proved, was that actually this was a, if you can have such a thing, a genuinely paranoid view taken by the Kremlin. They actually really did believe that this was going to happen. And, and persuading the West that, that, that it really was a, a genuine fear actually had a material effect on, on sawing out the Cold War, on ratcheting down tensions, because it, the Oval Office and, and 10 Downing Street, the decision was taken, OK, we, we cannot push this too far because we are going to sow the seeds of our own destruction. Because whatever we, however insane it may seem to us, there is somebody in the Kremlin who genuinely believes that we're about to press the, press the button. Well, that certainly comes to a head in 1983 with the war game in November, Able Archer 83, when no one in the West assumed that the Soviets would take this seriously as anything other than an operation, a training operation that had happened all the time, but understood in the context of Operation Rion, it was somewhat more understandable that the Soviets were freaking out about this. Yeah, I mean, there is clear evidence that the Soviets were, be, were, were, were fearful that what was a training, it was genuinely a training exercise, it was actually a cover for a genuine first strike, that, that actually the, the troops mobilizing in, 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 in towards the Eastern European borders were actually planning a proper attack. And, and many historians believe, uh, including Christopher Andrew, the official historian of MI5 in this country, believe that this was the closest the world came to nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis, that it was that, it was that perilous. Now, that is debated by other historians who say that it didn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, it didn't, hadn't got to that crisis stage, but it wasn't far off. What this also meant that we haven't really talked about yet, although you've alluded to it, <laughs> was that 
this had been closely guarded within British intelligence up until this point. They had given some of the take to their allies on a need-to-know basis, but because you're now talking about usually American nuclear policy, that meant that a lot of this information had to be shared across the Atlantic. That's right. I mean, initially, MI6 was extremely reluctant to share any of the product. I mean, it wanted, you know, unless it was absolutely vital to its allies, it kept it very, very close to its chest. Increasingly, at the beginning of the, of the 1980s, uh, there was a realization in Downing Street that this, this material produced by Gordievsky was of such importance that it really did have to go to the CIA. It had to be passed on uh, to the American channels. But it was done with extreme care and with extreme caution, and, and all the information passed over was heavily disguised. MI6 would never say where it had come from. And, and that, of course, is, is common practice in intelligence. You don't reveal your sources, even to your closest friends, because that's the potential for danger. And, and of course, the CIA would do exactly the same thing the other way around. You, you, you don't reveal who you've got. The problem with that, in this particular instance, was that because this was such important information, because it was so high grade, and because it was actively affecting policy, the CIA made a series of decisions to try to find out who the British had. But the CIA as I'm sure many of your listeners know, doesn't like to leave loose ends. Um, the CIA director would not enjoy the experience, I suspect, of going into the Oval Office and saying, we have this extremely reliable information, we believe it completely, being asked where it came from and having to say, well, we don't actually know. And so the CIA launched secretly, and without telling the British, launched its own investigation to try to find out who the Brits had. Now, there is still in British intelligence circles, there is still some resentment about this decision because of what happened as a result. I think a fairer assessment would be to say, well, you know, this was business as usual for the CIA. I mean, this, this is what you do. You don't leave loose ends. It would be, you know, some would argue that it would have been, it would have been irresponsible not to try to find out who the Brits had. But if you talk to people in British intelligence, quite a number of them will say, well, yes, maybe, but we would never have done it the other way. Well, we would never have launched an investigation to try to find out a source that we knew our closest ally was trying to protect and conceal. I mean, in hindsight, it may not have been such a big deal if they hadn't have asked a certain person to figure <laughs> out who Gordievsky was. Well, that is right. I mean, what... The CIA didn't know and would not discover for many, many years was that the head of counterintelligence, Aldrich Ames, was at this precise moment preparing to go over to the Soviets, preparing to become arguably the most damaging spy in CIA history. Aldrich Ames was head of counterintelligence. He was going to have access to the fruits of this investigation, and that, of course, is exactly what happened. Let me wrap up by asking about what I thought you can make a movie out of just this small, small little story here, and that is the meeting between Margaret Thatcher and Mikhail Gorbachev. And how amazing that was choreographed by Gordievsky himself. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I'd be interested to know if, if your listeners think differently, but I think this is the only time in history that this has happened. Gordievsky had risen to, to considerable heights within the KGB, and he was when, when, when Gorbachev, the future leader of the Soviet Union, came to visit Britain for the first time, it was Gordievsky who was tasked with producing reports for Gorbachev.
would say, they would tell him how to deal with Thatcher, what to say, what areas of, 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 of discussion were going to be most fruitful, how to deal with this woman. But, and he did. I mean, he produced voluminous reports. But, of course, what the KGB didn't realise and what Gorbachev didn't realise was that those reports were being dictated by MI6. MI6 was actually briefing Gorbachev. <laughs> MI6 was also briefing Thatcher. And was also briefing Thatcher in such a way that what Gorbachev said to her would, would work. And so you've got this extraordinary moment where, in effect, one intelligence service, one spy, is briefing both sides. And, of course, that famously, that meeting between Thatcher and Gorbachev is hailed as one of the great breakthroughs of the Cold War. Margaret Thatcher emerged from that meeting and, and sent a, a, a letter, a memo, to Ronald Reagan saying, this is a man we can do business with. Well, one of the reasons they could do business with each other was because Gordievsky was rigging the business. Well, and it also looked incredibly prescient to his his bosses because he was finding out what the British were going to talk about, you know, the negotiators on the foreign ministry side before they actually did because MI6 was feeding him information from the foreign ministry. Yeah, I mean, in fact, in some ways, the information MI6 was feeding him was too good. I mean, there was a particular colleague that he had in the KGB embassy who looked at one of Oleg's briefing notes for Gorbachev and looked him in the eye and said, hang on, this reads exactly like a foreign office document. Uh, and that sent a kind of shard of, of pure fear to Oleg because he realized he'd kind of over-egged the pudding. He'd, 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 in a way, he produced information that was too good, that looked too well-informed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he was, it was, it was a, you know, that was an absolutely vital moment. But I don't know of another occasion when a spy has been in a position to brief both sides in an absolutely vital diplomatic moment like that. Did he get too high? There was a promotion to what we would call chief of station or the resident. Was that the problem? Did it put him under such intense scrutiny and jealousy from his peers that they began to pick apart? some of the things that went unnoticed beforehand? That was one of the elements, I think. I mean, when you, I mean it's a very senior position, resident. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're on the top of the tree. It's, the KGB was riddled with petty jealousies and rivalries. Yes, I think some of these colleagues thought, well, hang on, why, why is this character doing so much better than us? Particularly when he arrived in Britain and didn't appear to be very good. He shot up the polls so fast, that's a bit suspicious. His two bosses have both been fired. Hmm, that's a bit suspicious too. But really, uh, uh, it, it's pretty clear that it, it was a tip from from Ames that really set the ball rolling. Now, whether Ames, in his initial approach to the KGB, actually produced Gordievsky's name, or whether he simply told the man who would end up being his, his, his KGB handler, whether he just said to him, look, we know the Brits have a senior spy within the KGB, you'd better go hunting. We don't really know. We do know for certain that Ames did, in June of, of 1985, produce Gordievsky's name and hand it to the KGB, confirm that Gordievsky had been recruited by British intelligence. At that point, they already had pretty much known it was him. They just didn't have any like concrete proof. What I found really strange is that the KGB would be so law and order, you know, so so needing the kind of proof that you would expect in a country like ours or a country like yours in a court of law versus the perception of the KGB of just make a guy disappear in the middle of the night. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is a misperception of the KGB, particularly in this period. Uh, when Oleg was recalled to Moscow uh, 
he knew pretty quickly. I mean, that was an act of supreme bravery, by the way. I mean, the fact that he decided to go back to Moscow when someone, rather than defect and, and, and bank his winning, that was, that's an extraordinary decision for him to take. And he knew very, very quickly that he was in real trouble. He knew the KGB was on him. And they played this sort of strange game of cat and mouse with him. They followed him. They kept him under surveillance. Clearly, they were trying to catch him with MI6. They wanted, to, they wanted proof positive. But one has to remember that, that the KGB was quite a legalistic organization. I mean, in spite of its reputation for simply, you know, brutal repression, which, of course, was entirely deserved, the other arm of it was that when they were investigating one of their own, they needed proof. And, and, and Oleg was a colonel in the KGB. I mean, he was a very senior KGB figure. They couldn't simply shoot him. Right. They had to put him on trial. Um, even if that was a closed trial, you know, there, there were forms to go through. And the other element that we have to remember is a sort of complacency on the part of the KGP. They did not believe that anybody could escape from the Soviet Union because nobody ever had in well, that way, and, and, let alone a KGB officer under surveillance. Well, under surveillance, you mentioned that. I love the inner office politics that play in a role here is they didn't put the top surveillance guys on him because yeah. they were worried about how it would look politically about one of their own guys being chased around. So they kind of, you know, didn't take the people whose job it was day in and day out to do surveillance. They put the kind of their lackeys on them. Yeah, they put the B team on it. It's, I mean, again, it's one of those sort of ironies, really. I mean, they failed not because of some grand failure of policy, but because of petty jealousies within the KGB. The person directly responsible for the directorate that, that Oleg was in didn't want his own people knowing that one of their number was uh, was, was was being followed and under suspicion because it would have been embarrassing to him. And so he picked a surveillance team that was used to following around Chinese diplomats, um, which is not a very hard job in, in Moscow. And so they were, they were, not to put too fine a point on it, they were pretty useless. They didn't realize who they were following. They didn't even really report it, it appears, when Oleg disappeared. I mean, three times he managed to throw off surveillance and three times he turned up again because he had to send... Uh, he had to fly the escape signal to his MI6 handlers, and clearly this wasn't reported by the surveillance team following him. And, but, and that, as you say, boiled down really to kind of individual choices made by people feathering in their own nest and trying to protect their own back. There's multiple layers of bureaucracy failing. I mean, that, that's <laughs> it would be a very <laughs> boring movie if you made kind of the reason that some of these <laughs> operations work or don't work is government bureaucracy but in many yeah. cases that, but it's often the case yeah. i mean it is often the case it's often the thing that that really proves to be you know it's 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 ordinary people making ordinary decisions decisions for their own selfish interests that actually change this stuff well the book is the spy and the traitor the greatest espionage story of the cold war the author is ben mcintyre most of you out there have certainly read him before this one i i it's a departure again because of the time period um but it's the same uh well researched uh but also well-written book that we expect from ben at this point so thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to us here at spycast we truly appreciate it it's been a great pleasure thank you for listening to spycast remember every tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and itunes if you have any questions or comments about spycast email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week.